important to pay attention to every word. A word like if, we'll talk about it, but it makes the whatever follows conditional. It's not a permanent thing. It's not a given thing. It's a conditional statement. But Peter says, if these things be in you and abound, it's not simply the case that they're supposed to be in you. While that is important, they're supposed to be there and abound. Peter says, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things, as you can see, there is going to be a positive nature to it and a negative nature to it. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he has purged or was purged from his old sins. Peter's talking about growth, and again, you hear him use the word knowledge with reference to this. But he says, first of all, growth is conditional. You'll remember the if. If, he says, growth, secondly, is Christ-centered. If these things, well, what things were they? Go back and read verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7. These things, the things that are be added to one's faith, the godliness and the virtue and the knowledge and the temperance and all of those things. Peter says, if these things be in you, Christian growth is personally accomplished. These are things that need to be in you. Peter says they're personal and they're benefits. If these things are in you, he says, they will make you that you will not be barren or unfruitful. Growing and producing fruit are expectations of disciples of our Lord. In fact, Jesus addresses it in John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, look at John chapter 15 and notice the Lord's conversation with the apostles. In John chapter 15, Jesus labels himself, he labels the Father, and he labels the apostles. And he says, I am the vine, I'm the true vine. In whatever discussion he's having, Jesus Christ is the vine. In fact, he says, I'm the true vine. He goes on to say, my Father is the vine dresser. We have a vine and we have a vine dresser. And then he says, every branch. That's us. That's the disciples. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. There's the idea of barren and unfruitful. What happens to it? He takes it away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That's the idea. Peter is saying, if these things be in you, well, what are you? You're a branch. Where? in the vine, connected to Jesus. How does one grow? Well, he lists five, six, and seven is what Peter does. In fact, Jesus says in verse number four, 
abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he says, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea and expectation is very clear that those who are in Christ will bear fruit. Not simply bear much, they will bear much fruit. What's the pruning, I suppose? It's probably hardship, challenge, difficulties. That's what happens. James says it this way, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the trying of your faith, it bears fruit. It worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect or complete and entire, lacking in nothing. Count it a joy. Why? There's going to be some pruning. You're going to get better. You're going to get stronger through the pruning. And as it's done, you'll bear much fruit. You'll abound more and more. They would need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. What happens to the unfruitful? Well, Jesus says then, my Father will cast them away. Peter says it this way, back in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 8 or 9, he who lacks these qualities. There is the ability for one then to lack the qualities. He says that person is blind or short-sighted and having forgotten his purification from his former sins. How does one produce the fruit? Now the parable is this, Matthew 13 and Luke 8, the seed is the word of God. It's the seed in Luke chapter 8, it's the seed of the kingdom in Matthew 13. The seed produces the fruit, Galatians 5, to 24, Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, they're chided for not growing. It's possible to lack these things. The things that are mentioned in verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7, and so Peter says, our first point, or what he says in verse 8 and 9, remind them that we need to bear fruit. Next, verses 10 and 11, the reminder is we must then take our faith personally. We must take self-ownership of our faith. And so he says in verse number 10 and 11, wherefore the rather, brethren, he says it again, giving all diligence to make your calling and election sure. For, again, if you do these things, what will happen? You shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second time in this very chapter, Peter uses this expression, give diligence. You remember in verse number five, that's how we're going to add the things. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence add to your faith. Here again in verse number 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of your calling and your election. Make it sure. It too is conditional. If you do these things. One of the things that's taught in Scripture, and it's important for every person, every Christian to appreciate it, is the absolute autonomy of the individual. It is proclaimed from cover to cover. From the time God makes us in his image, God 
makes this pronouncement all the way through Bible, all the scriptures, that the individual is autonomous, that the individual is empowered to choose him. The individual is enabled to seek and define and submit to him, that the individual is equipped to change his course of action if need be. God has given us everything we need, and that's the way Scripture couches our faith initially with regards to obedience. That's how it couches our walk. That's how it couches our growth. Over and over again, the autonomy of the individual is emphasized. No one else is to be blamed. No one else is to be held accountable. No one else is charged with your life and your faith and your relationship with God. In the first gospel sermon, Peter and the other apostles, the Bible says in verse number 40, with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, save yourselves. Estimate range in the millions of Jews who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Nineteen different nations, Jews from all over the world. Estimates range in the millions, and the apostles are up speaking. And to that vast audience, they say, save yourself. That's the way the Scriptures regard the autonomy of the individual. What's the opposite of that? It's what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26. For what is a man profited if he gained the whole world and he doesn't have any soul to lose but his own and lose his own soul? There is one human being in possession of your soul, one human being responsible for your soul, one human being capable of saving or losing your soul. The autonomy of the individual is emphasized from cover to cover in Scripture. In fact, that's how we talk about the people in the Bible. We say Abraham was the friend of God. We say David was a man after God's own heart. We proclaim Esther for her courage and her faithfulness, Joseph for his fidelity, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, each man for his courage and conviction. We will not bow. The apostles who stand four square on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can't help but preach the things which we see. We understand. We read every single person, and we know each individual stood up and either was faithful to God and saved themselves as a result of that faithfulness, com committing their life to God, or they rejected God. We have Cain and Abel. We have Moses and Pharaoh. It's no different today. Peter talks to his audience. He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Paul would say, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. John would say, love not the world. Who? You. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world's passing away, and the lust thereof. John's emphasis, Peter's rather, emphasis is to remind them to take possession power, strength of their own faith and relationship with God. 
You are what you and I have chosen to be. You're bearing the fruit you have chosen to bear or not bear. Whether we produce these things or not produce these things, it's ours. The faithful, faith-producing Christian, Peter also says, need not worry about their entrance into heaven. Sometimes it's unfortunate we talk about heaven as if we are going to slide in at the 11th hour with the doors closing, and as they're closing, the faithful are going to slip in and go, whoosh, we made it. And that's Paul. And so we immediately say, well, I'm no Paul. And so when asked about heaven, we say things like, I hope so. I'm trying. I dare, you know, if I could just, and we feign ourselves humble, if I could just be a doorman in the heaven. Heaven doesn't have any doormen, best I can ascertain. <laughs> what happens if you're faithful? What happens if your heart's right with the Lord? You're doing the things that Jesus commands, you're walking in the light, you're, you're bearing fruit. What happens to that person when it comes to heaven? Did you read the same verses I did? Verse number 10 says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. He says, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Number one, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. King James says, you'll never fall if you do these things. John would say, walk in the light. He is in the light. You do these things. But what else that happened? Verse number 11 says, for so an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be, boy, it'll just be barely opened. You know, maybe just, no, it says it will be ministered abundantly. It will be wide open if you'll allow. The doors will be wide open. The entrance will be readily accessible. There will be no eking in or barely making it. No, you'll walk in. It will be absolutely wide open to you. That's the way Christians are going to go to heaven. There are no faithful Christians eking their way into heaven. There are no faithful Christians barely making it. It's not a biblical concept. Faithful people go to heaven, and they couldn't miss it if they tried. If they're faithful, that's the way it works. Nobody who is lost, you don't suppose the wicked and the sinful are going to barely get into hell, do you? It's not going to work that way in reverse. Number three, it is necessary to be reminded. Sometimes, well, quite frankly, people get tired of being reminded. Why are we talking about that again? Sometimes Christians say. Why does he keep preaching about that? Sometimes Why can't we just leave that stuff alone? Sometimes Christians say. You know, Peter says it's necessary to remind people even though they already know it. Begin reading at verse number 12. Where Peter says, wherefore, I would not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meets so as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. 
knowing that shortly I must put off my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ had showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be after my able, after my decease, to have these things again, he says, always in remembrance. There's about four things that Peter says in these verses that are absolutely noteworthy. Number one is this. Peter says, if I didn't warn you, if I didn't remind you, I would be negligent. In fact, that's what he says in verse 12. He says, therefore, brethren, I've already reminded you of these things. He said, I would not be negligent if I didn't remind you. He says, secondly, it's necessary. He says, even though you know them and are established in the truth, even though you know them, it's still necessary to remind you. Then thirdly, he says, reminding them, well, that's what his life was all about. It's a permanent part of his life. Peter says, as long as I am in this tabernacle, I'll be reminding you. As long as I live, I'll be reminding you. As long as I have breath in my body, it will be necessary for me to remind you. And then he pivots and says, I don't have much time. He says in verse 14, knowing that I must shortly put off this tabernacle. Peter is now the aged man, the one that Jesus talked about in John 21, where he says, someday people will take you where you don't want to go. Somewhere you'll be led about. Peter is that old man now, and Peter says, listen, I don't know how much time I have. I don't have much time, and so I'll remind you because my time here is uncertain. Knowing shortly, I must put off this tabernacle. I'll remind you as long as I live, I don't have much time to live. Guess what you'll be getting? Reminders. But Peter says the reminders are intended to outlive me. Notice the end of what he says. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. These two sermons were really a lengthy introduction. <laughs> For the sermon that's now. And the sermon that's now is to remind you that we had our first year together. I need to remind you of some of the things we talked about. I won't ask you to remember, but I remember. I remember the first sermon I preached at Westside. I do. Let me remind you of it. You have your Bibles? Look at Romans chapter 11. Let me remind you of what we're trying to accomplish. Let me remind you of what the preaching of the gospel is all about. Let me remind you of what our lives are all about. It's Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. And I think the title was something like this, everything is about God or it's all about God. Paul says in verse 36, let me remind you, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. We had a year together. I hope you will be reminded that that year was all about God. 
The preaching of the gospel is about God, but more than that, our lives are about God. From him, to him, through him, all things to his glory. I don't know what your next week will be like, but let me remind you to have that as the foundation of it. Number two, our purpose in being here is to know God. That's Acts 17, 27. We talked about that as well. I don't know when within the course of a year, but I know that we did. Acts chapter 17, Paul's great sermon to those individuals who didn't know God but worshiped many things. Paul talks about God creating the world in verse 24. And then he says in verse 27, with regards to God making man upon the face of the earth in verse 26, he gives the reason for that in verse 27, that they would seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him. It's the goal and purpose and end of life. Seek the Lord and find him. We talked about that. Oh, I hope that's what you're still doing. I hope you're still seeking. I hope you're still finding. Hope you're still growing. Hope you're still learning. Why read the scriptures? That was the third thing we talked about quite a bit. Let me remind you, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We read and we talked about again, again, and again, 1 Corinthians 2, 8 to 13. Why? To remind you that the only way to know God is revelation. You cannot feel God. You cannot. God is spirit. You cannot imagine God. You cannot think up God. You cannot wait for God to give you a sign. No sign is coming. His revelation is what God has provided. Paul says, but I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love them. But God has revealed it unto us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man. How would we come to know them? He's revealed them to us. Friends, when you want to know something about God, don't put your Bible down. Pick your Bible up and open it and start reading. If you're waiting for God to give you something, don't put your Bible down. Pick your Bible up and start reading it. Proverbs chapter 2 and verse number 6, the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired of God. How can I know him? Scripture. If you don't read the Bible, you can't know God. It's not much more complicated than that. If you don't know God, then you cannot do the next thing, and that's live like God. You can't do that. Christ is God in the flesh, and when he comes, he will, Isaiah 2, 2, and 3, he will teach us of his ways. Where would I find out about God? Jesus. Where would I find Jesus? In the Scriptures. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and circle it, underline it, do whatever you need. Highlight the phrase, learn of me. 
For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. What's the point of Christianity? What's the aim? What's it all about? Yes, come, seek, find, and when you do, learn Jesus. Because if you learn Jesus, you'll learn the Father, John 14, 6 through 9. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Philip says, show us the Father, and it'll suffice us. Jesus said, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and have you not known me? He that had seen me had seen the Father. If the goal, purpose, aim, end of life is to learn God, then God sent Christ to teach us His ways, then I must learn Jesus. Where would I do that? I have to have the Scriptures, Amen. and I have to spend time with Jesus. I have to enroll in His school. I have to become His disciple. I have to follow Him, watch Him, hear Him, listen to Him, learn of Him, and emulate Him. I have to do that. Let me remind you that that's what's trying to be accomplished here. Let me remind you that God expects this of us. Peter just talked about bearing fruit. How do you do that? You learn of Him, and then you live like him. In his first address to humanity, Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Jesus touched the subject of love. But not just any love. Jesus said, love your enemies. You've heard that it has been said, love those who love you, hate those who hate you. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he gives reigns to the just and the unjust. For if you love those that love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? No, but he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. How do I love like God? I learn him, and then I live like him. Be ye kind, tenderhearted one to another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. When it comes to love, how do I do that? Like God. When it comes to forgiveness, how do I do that? Like God. When it comes to showing mercy, how do I do that? Like God. The way God loved me, the way God forgave me, the way God is merciful to me, that's how I do that. How do I learn that, Revelation? How do I learn that? I follow Jesus. How do I do that? I do what he did. I think like he thinks. I say what he said. I live like him. I become just like my master. Who's to do that? For if these things be in you, they'll make you, that you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. Let me remind you that Scripture is the mystery of God made known. What's God doing in the world? Well, I can tell you what the Bible is about. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19 is a real good summation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Paul will call it the mystery in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And he will say of that mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of the gospel through Jesus Christ, that the church is the manifold wisdom of God, purpose in eternity. I don't know how you regard the church, but I hope it's as high as God regards it. That God purposed the church, prophesied the church, promised the church, planned for the church, prepared the church, perfected the church, Christ purchased the church. I hope that's how you think of it, that it's God's work. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, Christ is the head of the body, the church. 
that it's where all men are reconciled unto God. That's how Peter could say we have a like precious faith because those that were far off are made near and those that were already his are brought in by the gospel of Jesus Christ and he has made two into one and reconciled them because Christ is our peace. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, it's the manifold wisdom of God, the eternal purpose of God. Chapter 3, 20 and 21, it's where Christ is glorified throughout all ages, world without end. Chapter 4, 4 through 6, there's only one. In chapter 5, 32 to 33, she's the bride of Christ. Once we're saved, let me remind you that we are to live sanctified, holy lives that salvation leads to sanctification, that they're not the same thing, that those who are saved are now set apart. Having been set apart, the salvation is secured, the sanctification begins. And that's what Peter is talking about, but it's not just Peter. It's nearly every Bible writer that touches the subject. First, they'll explain God's mystery and how he worked out the plan to bring the Christ. And then they'll talk about Jesus and what he has done on your behalf, which you could not do for yourself. And then they will say, now, in light of what God did and Jesus accomplished, now that you're his, You'll read things like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One has called you as holy, so be ye holy, for I am holy, because it's written. That's what we're to be in all manner and conversations. How are Christians to live holy lives, like saved people? This is why what comes out of a Christian mouth matters. This is why when Christians say things like, well, man, I just have to tell them what, that's no, thousand times no. That's the way we were. It's not the way we are. This is why it matters where Christians go and what they do and what they say. This is why it matters. The Bible says to that person, let your light so shine. That's holy living. The Bible says that that person, you tame your tongue, James chapter 3. The Bible says to that person, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. The Bible says to that person, let fornication not once be named among you as become its saints. That's a different person. And what is that person doing? Peter says, if these things be in you, Peter says, add to your faith. Christian friend, please don't make the mistake that many of us have made in the past where somehow in the preaching of the gospel, what's heard is, if we can only get you to the baptistry, that'll be sufficient. Somehow that message is received. It's not the one being sent, but somehow that's what's sent out. And people come to, to say, well, I got baptized. Thank the Lord for that. God bless you. You couldn't make a better decision than to get baptized. You know what that makes you now? A Christian. Well, what do Christians do? They grow in grace and in knowledge. They live holy. They bear fruit. They live lives like the one who bought them. They don't stop here. They don't boil down their relationship with God and Jesus by attendance. They don't say, well, at least I come. 
They don't say I checked my box. They don't say I crossed my T, I dotted my I, I want credit. That's not what they say. It was a whole different conversation for a right-thinking Christian who understands that my relationship with God has begun, and thank God I'm saved, and I'm going to grow in my relationship with my Father. A year of that person's life should look different after the year it began. Give that person two years, three years, five years. Shouldn't it look different? Shouldn't they sound different? You know Bambi eventually stumbles and then walks. But give Bambi four, five, six years, and you'll see jumping and running and hopping. Over time, you'll see a whole big animal out there just full. Don't shoot Bambi. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you'll see, you'll see growth and maturation. That's the way it's supposed to work. Yes, when we're babes, we stumble, we fall, we make mistakes. And may God help the mature Christians to take it easy and careful with the babies. May we help them begin to grow and not beat them down for every mistake made. May we not do that. But you tell me, you bring a brand new baby home. I mean shiny with a new baby smell baby. Mm, that's good stuff right there. We give you that baby and we come back and visit three years later. There's some growth, isn't it? Five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, we would see a same human being, but growth and maturation. You know, that's the way it's supposed to work in Christ. While we thank God for godly shepherds, we can't outsource our faith to them. While we thank God for men like Furman and Derek, faithful gospel, we can't outsource our faith to them. And while we thank God for a family of, of deacons and faithful Christians and strong and mature individuals, but we can't outsource our faith. We can grow in that space, and thank God we have it to grow in. But let me remind you, once we're saved, we are charged with living holy, set-apart, sanctified lives that reflect the salvation God has blessed us with. Let me remind you also that hell is real and to be avoided at all cost. We have not advanced so far in our life and in our world that hell is no longer real. We can't soften it. We can't describe it as the bad place. We can't close our eyes and pretend that the lost aren't going. In fact, it needs to stay before us because there are people outside of the Lord. And while we have to be concerned with the body and our faith, Matthew 7, 12 and the Great Commission demand that we be concerned for the lost and that we don't go in the world and take the self-righteous approach that I'm glad I'm not like. But rather, we take the Christ-like approach and we see them as sheep with no shepherd. And people are lost. And don't you and I solace ourselves for one second that it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. Every person that leaves this world 
uncovered and uncleansed by the blood of Jesus is a person that will spend eternity in hell. There is no way to soften that. And may we never try. May we simply be reminded that the world needs the gospel. And may we do what we can to share it with those that are lost. That brings us to the final thing. Let me remind you that heaven is real too. And that heaven is the home of the soul for the faithful. That heaven is our hope and our expectation. And that heaven was always the plan and God's purpose. And that heaven is for faithful people. And I'm going to beg you now to go ahead, make your calling and election sure. Having done that, though, if you're living faithful, please do not get near the end of your life and start to scramble and to wonder. Your entrance into heaven in the end is not going to be because you are good enough. It's not going to be because you, quote, did enough. It's going to be because of God and because of Jesus and because of the cleansing blood and the grace of God. That's why we're going. And when you get near the end, I pray that you will be reminded that this was always the plan and the process and the expectation and hope of faithful living. And it won't be a surprise, and it's no time to get afraid. It's time to embrace the only expectation that God has set out for his faithful children to come home and be with him. Let me remind you that heaven is the home of the soul for God's faithful children. And if you are faithful, you're going to heaven, and entrance will be administered abundantly unto you. If you're not a Christian tonight, I have never seen in my lifetime a year go by so fast. But let me remind you that it's been a year already. And I hope that you have grown and been blessed by our time together. And I hope that you are doing the things that get you closer to our Father. If we can help you in that area in any way, please let the elders, let the preachers, let somebody know not a Christian, become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart and your mind while there's still time. Confess his name. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins and let God through Jesus save you. Become a Christian. Give your life to him. Let me remind you that it is the best life any human being can live now and the only life that allows one to live with God eternally. If you are his child, we can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.